little ones are welcome to go with Miss Cheryl and children are welcome to go with Matt. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Lord, meet us, would you, Jesus? Would you meet us, Lord? We, uh, we're awed by your glory. Would you, would you show us your glory this morning? We thank you, Lord. Amen. So, Cheryl and I like to watch European mysteries. We, we, we've never been huge TV watchers, but somehow, maybe like a lot of people, since COVID, we've suddenly found ourselves watching probably more TV than we should. But we try to stay in the genre of these European mysteries. So we thought we'd seen all the good ones. We were, we were getting quite bored. And then we stumbled into one that suddenly has us like engaged. Now, it's this, it's this French detective named Balthazar. Anybody seen these? Right? They're, they're on one of those Amazon things. So Balthazar, in Balthazar, the French tell us more about themselves than they realize. And they're telling us what the good life is from their point of view. Balthazar lives in an apartment in Paris. From his apartment, you can see Montmartre, right? He's tall, he's dark, he's got lovely curly hair, he's athletic, he's brilliant, he's courageous, he's super smart. He's a forensic doctor for the police. And... You know, they put him in all these absurd situations and he figures everything out and solves it all when everybody else is, you know, trucking down the wrong road and all the other stuff. But most of all, Balthazar won't have any of that nonsense. None of this God stuff. He didn't put it so bluntly, but, you know, France is one of the most secular countries in the world. And the French are unwittingly telling us who they are. But... I actually think it's the other way around. I call Balthazar the best of the nonsense. Because in spite of himself, in spite of believing there isn't anyone out there, he can't help but wrestle with the griefs of his own life by talking to people who aren't present. He talks to himself. He talks to the person he imagined the cadaver he was working on is. And these are genius, by the way. Like, I love this. I'm not criticizing the show. It's genius. I love it. And what they do with him talking to the cadavers, the, the person that they were, sometimes is just riotously funny. Like, it's genius shows. But he can't not reference something outside himself, relationally. Make sense? We're made for relationship. We're made for connection this way, and ultimately this way, and he can't handle what life's given to him, which, to be fair to him, is considerably heavy, but he finds himself talking to himself. He finds himself talking to people who aren't there. He finds himself talking to the person he imagined the cadaver to be. Balthazar would have been fantastic friends with the young Augustine. Augustine, as a young man growing up in North Africa, trying to figure out what it's all about, moving to Milan, the big, the big city of the day, eventually coming to faith in Jesus, and then famously saying at some point later in life, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. This is Balthazar. 
And he's such a, such a dear, endearing character. I get, I get into this story because, for me, it names something that I think is a real struggle for people like us who live in a place like this. Can we hold together the reality of how good life is? Can we roll together the reality of how good life is robustly with the full reality that we don't need a tweak? We need a death and to be remade. We don't need a little bit of help. We need new life. The depth of the reality is we need someone to have died for us to reset the human. And yet life is still good, very good. And both of these things are robustly true at the same time. But that's a struggle, right? Is it? Do you struggle to hold that together? I do. I struggle to hold that together. I'm living here on the swanky, leafy North Shore, and life is so good, right? And I get my cardamom bun and my coffee in front of me, and I'm just so happy. And surely we can fix it. Surely we can work it out. Surely just a little more education, a little more of this, a little more tweaking, a little more of something or other, and we can make life work, but we can't. And if we were honest, we would testify that history is against that perspective, As I hate to say it, but things aren't getting better, are they? There's never been more slavery in the world than there is today. That should, be, that should do it by itself. That statistic alone should do it. Anybody know the wonderful Marvin Gaye song, Mercy, Mercy Me, Things Ain't What They Used to Be? What's that song about? The ecology. Marvin Gaye singing about the ecology back in whatever it was, 71 or something. It ain't got any better. It's not trending into better. The distance between the rich and the poor. I'm sorry, that dude at Harvard who says that, you know, this kind of economics will raise everyone's boat. It ain't happening. Anybody see how much Shell made while people in Europe were being told, sorry, you can't pay for your heat because the costs are going through the roof? Or how the richest people in the world got massively richer during the pandemic? It's not true that if we just tweak a little of this or that, we can make it work. But it is true that life is good. And how do we bring all this into to balance, or how do we live both of them robustly? Forget balance. Today, this is actually, I believe, all connected to the transfiguration of Jesus. It works like this. Jesus is going along, and people are responding. And life is good. And they're caring for him, and they're listening to him, and he's healing people, and people are rejoicing to get back into the goodness of life, and they're inviting him to dinner, and they're supporting him, and they care about him, and they are delighted in the things he's teaching them. And he comes to this point then where he says to the disciples, who is it that people say that I am? Maybe they're getting it. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. Massive moment. Someone got it. Realization. All the seeds I've been sowing, all the hints I've been doing, all the things I've been doing, it's working. 
Jesus then says to them, he begins, Matthew tells us, he begins to tell them, I have to go to Jerusalem where I will suffer and die. Peter, as you know, says, no, no, it's too good. Surely it isn't that bad. Surely it doesn't take all of that. Life is too good. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Shocking, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. Why? Is it possible that the reason Jesus says this to, that, to, to Peter is because Jesus feels inside himself the temptation of this? It's not heretical to suggest that, is it? I mean, we're told in Corinthians that he was tempted in every way as we are. And we know that he goes into the garden at Gethsemane and he says, while sweating blood, right? He says, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. And then he says, not my will, but yours. But at some visceral level, Jesus is saying, I'm alive. I like being alive. It's working. It's good. There must be a way to get there without the dying part. I mean, come on, that's drastic. Really? A violent, self-giving, sacrificial death in torture? So Jesus goes up the hill. He takes just three of them with him. And when he's up there, he's met by Moses and Elijah. Now, most of the time, when you've heard people talk about this, they've said the reason Moses and Elijah met him were why? What are the reasons? Because Moses is the lawgiver and Elijah is the prophet par excellence. Well, whoopee. I mean, yeah, it's true. It's not that it's not true, but it's just not enough, is it? I mean, there's more going on than this. Moses is the lawgiver because he brought them out of slavery and he started them on a road to a place where they could order their society and their culture in a way that God gave them to order it that reflected his character. In other words, a whole new world. Elijah is the prophet par excellence because when not only were they flirting with Baal, but the king at the moment had gone and married himself into the neighboring people who were stuck with Baal, who is like Shiva, if you will, in the Hindu world. It's a closed, eventually it's a closed horizon. Eventually the horizon shuts down and it becomes nihilism. Eventually, I know it's not instant, but it's where it goes. And Elijah's the one who says no to that. We've got to keep the plot. We've got to hold on. So Elijah and Moses meet Jesus in order to tell Jesus that it does have to go that far. And both of them know, because both of them have experienced the temptation, that surely it isn't this bad. Moses, out in the wilderness, he goes up to meet with God. He meets with God. God gives him the law. God lays out for him what a beautiful world I'm sending you guys to make. We misread so much of the law. He's telling them to make a world where the orphan, the poor, the widow, the alien are cared for. When they go into the promised land, if they structure their lives the way God told them to, then the Lord God says to them, you will have no poor among you. You'll give Sabbath to the land. You'll let people glean. There's all kinds of beautiful things that they're told to do. And 
he comes down from the mountain after meeting with this God who's just given him this beautiful vision of how to order life together, and he finds that they have already given up. They've already given up. They've already brought their good stuff, melted it down, and made a a golden calf. And they're dancing around it. So then comes one of the hardest moments of the entire Old Testament. Moses tells them, if you're not into this, go get your sword, guys. And And they go and they do one of the toughest, hardest moments of the entire Old Testament. They clean house. And Moses, after that, begins again to meet with the Lord, but he's so just the way you feel about that story that he says, Lord, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. Show me your glory. I got to see something beyond. I have to see something beyond all this. And so the Lord takes Moses and he says, I'll show you my back because if you see my glory, you won't be able to handle it. You won't be able to live. So he takes Moses and he shows him his back. And then Moses is able to say, There is a breaking through that comes. There is something beyond this. There is something where we get to the other side and life happens and it's right and good and beautiful. And Moses is able then to keep the plot. So he goes back and he begins to meet with the Lord again, face to face as a man meets with his friend. And as Moses does this, he'd come out and his face would shine. Elijah. So Ahab shows up. So you're reading along in Kings and it's one of these places where it's like, wah, 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 you know, and so-and-so became king, and he did worse than his father, and so-and-so became king, and he did worse. Never fall asleep in the Bible. Because then comes Ahab, and Ahab come along, and he did worse then, and he even married himself to Jezebel, who was queen of king so-and-so in the Sidonians. He has, he has now formally linked them together with one of these nihilistic peoples. And we're told, we're told this odd thing that we don't clue in, that Heel rebuilt the walls and the foundation and the, and the gate of Jericho at the cost of his oldest and his youngest son. And we all go, well, that's weird. How's, what's that have to do with it? Probably, it's a probably, because the Canaanites literally, in their liturgy, had it made into their liturgy to offer living young humans in fire sacrifice, and they literally had a moment in the liturgy when they would all scream together. The people would, so they'd drown out the sound of the babies screaming. It's horrible. It is absolutely horrible, and that's the point. So this guy does this at the cost. In other words, probably he sacrificed his two sons because they had literally married themselves to these bell-worshiping people. And they did it to try to have the good life. They did it because those people were strong. They did it because they wanted the good things those people could bring. So Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel after he has told Ahab, there'll be no more rain till I say so, and they go for a while, and then the time comes, and they go up and they have the showdown in 1 Kings 17. All right? If you don't know it, read it. It's worth reading. It's actually like crazy amazing stuff. They have the showdown. And so Elijah... It's over, right? Bell's the rain god, the fertility god. I said it wouldn't rain for two years until I said so. It didn't rain for two years until I said so. Your prophets danced around and nothing happened. I called out to God and God sent a lightning bolt. Shazam. It's over. But it isn't. 
they still won't turn. And Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. So Elijah goes off and he's depressed and he's ready to die. And he says, I I don't get it. I can't do it. It's too much. It's too big. It asks too much of me. And the Lord God sends an angel. And don't you love it? What's the first thing the angel does? Well, the first thing the angel does is, (laughs) it's funny. He says, hey, Elijah, what you doing? Right? Which is kind of fun. The second thing the angel does is amazing. He feeds him. Which is very interesting because the third thing is that God puts his spirit into Elijah so that Elijah supernaturally runs for 40 days. But God fed him first. Just a, just a fun little moment of God caring for the whole of who we are. Because if you're going to blast him with your spirit and supernaturally cause him to run for 40 days, do you have to feed him? I mean, I don't know, but he does feed him, right? It's, it's great. It's God caring for body, mind, and spirit. And he takes Elijah and then he reveals himself to Elijah. And Elijah can breathe again and he can carry on. So why is it Moses and Elijah who meet with Jesus? Because they know the struggle that Jesus is carrying. They know what the good life looks like. They know how wonderful life is. They know the beauty of tender realities. They also know that what has to happen is something completely new and different that breaks completely through and restarts the whole thing. And that is going to take sacrifice. And they come to Jesus and they say, yeah, it it does take sacrifice. We've been there, we know. And they come to Jesus and they say, but it does break through to the other side. We, We have seen it. We know. And do you get the amazing thing here? Jesus, Jesus needs community to keep on going. There is no one. I mean, Moses and Elijah have to come meet with him because of the size of who he is and what he has to do. There's nobody else who could adequately be community to him in that moment but he still needs community. In Luke's version of this story, there's a little sentence that tells us clearly that this is pointing to Jesus' cross. Luke says, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and were speaking with him of his exodus, is the actual word, of his exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Those are three loaded, loaded New Testament words. The exodus, going into a new world, fulfill a covenant, a calling, a responsibility, walk through it to its wholeness. In Jerusalem, the place where Jesus said he would go and he would die. This is about Jesus going to face his cross. This is why the church in her wisdom has us celebrate the transfiguration on the last Sunday before Lent begins. Because this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to see the Father's glory. He's going to hear the voice that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that is going to give him the strength then to get up and to take the Lenten voyage journey forward. And from here, he's going to go forward to Jerusalem where he knows he will be killed. 
and because he will give himself in love and because he will be the sacrifice who dies and because he is the new human being, the second Adam, the human being reset and he represents all of us, then he in himself gets newness, for lack of a better way to put it, deep enough to get under it all and to be a seed of new life. And this is also why on this side of the cross, you don't find the kind of painful stories that we had with Moses and with Elijah. Because now there's been a qualitative change. In this world back here, they're sort of wrapped up in the mess of the world. They're sort of enmeshed in it. We still live in the realities of the world because Jesus incarnated himself, but we live in them, pulling them up into a different space instead of having to do it their way because that's the way it is. And that's how that changes on the hinge of the cross. And Jesus then is able to go and, if you will, to hold on that life is good. It is good. He deemed it to be good when he made it. It's really, really good, and that is fantastic. We also need more than tweaking. We need God's spirit inside us, making us new. We need to die to ourselves and take Jesus on ourselves and let his sacrifice of himself be our life and our breath and our hope. So Jesus is transfigured. He's radiant. And a bright cloud comes upon him. Not a heavy, fog-laden, scary, dark thing. A bright cloud and the words speak Beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. What's crazy to me about this is it's now. This is the part where you might think Peter, James, and John would be happy, but this is the part where they get terrified. I think you, I mean, I think I might have been terrified when Moses and Elijah showed up. I, I don't know, right? But somehow it's now that they get terrified. I don't understand that. But they see something that's so amazing that they fall on their faces. And this is a wonderful, profound paradox. The only way to live without fear is to fall on your face fully before God in holy fear and awe of God. The only way to go forward in this messed up world is to fall on our face before God The only way to go forward without fear is to give all fear to God and say, here I am, I'm yours. It's the only way. Romans chapter 8, the amazing passage, Paul writes, he says, I believe that it is not worth comparing the troubles of the current time to the glory that will be revealed into us. Literally, preposition, literally into, put into. 
coming in from the in, you know from the in out the glory i believe that the troubles of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us i like imagining when when Cheryl and i watch these balthazar detective stories i know you haven't seen them so i know it's like a blank canvas or whatever but i like imagining this guy who i like so much but i think is such a knucklehead i i like Imagining what if what if he were himself still? What if he were still a rule breaker and hilarious and energetic and overbearing and super brilliant and all these kinds of things? And he was also a follower of Jesus all at the same time. I think he'd be a little more kind and polite to to some people. He he he'd be a little less sarcastic with some people. But on the whole, I think he'd be largely the same person he is, except for this. He'd be more able to grieve and he'd be more able to have true deep joy. He'd be more able to deal with grief and he would also have more true deep joy. Jesus, friend, goes to the cross, the grief of the cross, because He was able, Hebrews tells us, because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. There's a depth of reality that brings it all together. Today we get the chance to see Jesus, a little hint of his glory. So friends, I invite you just to uh, take a little time. We'll take a couple minutes and just share with the Lord whatever whatever has come up in your heart and in your mind in this time. Ask him if ask him if you can see his glory. Tell him if you if you can't make it. If life is too much, overwhelming is running over you. Ask him to meet you let you see.